Hi, this is Tamsin Gringer. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Monday, July 19th, 2021. We missed a week. We missed a week because uh, we're busy. We're busy uh, grandparents. That's what it is. We're responsible. Uh, and we had to go out. We had to hightail to California to take care of a neglected granddaughter, Pepper, <laughs> who has been sitting there waiting to see her, her grandma, uh, her yaya, as she likes to refer to her, and uh, Mr. Terribly. So we went, we hightailed it out there. Is that fair? Who's Mr. Terribly? Who oh, was, you're Mr. Terribly. No, missed her terribly. Oh, okay. She missed you Got terribly. It. Well, look, she's... she's. Well, she needed some East Coast influence. <laughs> she's out there on her own. There's no cultural reference points out there. She's right. lost, lost right. at sea. And we helped them move. You know, they, they moved mean, to a new location. We were a big help. She'll be a year old soon, and uh, things are falling behind. Yes, that's right. So uh, she needed her grandparents out there in a hurry. And, uh, you know, it's a funny thing. You go out there, uh, you're helping out with a move, and uh, people are always handing you a baby. And uh, it's hard to concentrate on the podcast under those circumstances. It's difficult. So uh, I think we have a good excuse. But we had a good time. Yeah, we had a good time. And we did all the California things. We went uh, went to the beach. Bike riding on the path at Santa Monica. Well, along the coastline, I think it's called. Yeah. The Santa and... Monica coastline. <laughs> yes. We went in the water. Yes, we, it's called swimming. Yeah. Yes, we did that too. I, it doesn't seem to be many other people swimming. No, you know, the, the West Coast is not up with the East Coast on that. I think that's an East Coast thing. Every once in a while you say to the West Coast, you say to somebody who went in the water, they go, in the water? In the Pacific Ocean. You know, well, you it's would, cold. You in Balboa. It's chilly. <laughs> you know, I, I guess. It's not so bad. Uh, so, uh, yeah, no, we had a very good time. Um, and the funny thing is that as soon as we got back to add to our busyness, uh, we prepared and then uh, set forth for Block Island, which is where we are right now. Yes. In, in the East Coast Loyal Ocean. listeners. <laughs> Well, no. Are rewarded. That we go to Block Island. <laughs> With the information, that's We've right. We've been going to Block Island every year. Right. We often uh, broadcast from Block Island. Where we are now, and it's beautiful. With the whole family. Yes. Well, what's different about this year is the whole family is busy elsewhere. What? And that's, so it's just you and me. That, that's all, you know, that's that's uh, well within the ambit of what happens to families. Well, it's it, a different kind of vacation. It's, it really course. is a get away from it all well, vacation. Well, you and I can finally get to know each other after uh, 40 some odd years of uh, And fencing. I do mean odd. Oh, God. And uh, yeah, so uh, no, we're having a good time. We've only been here a short time. We'll talk more about Block Island next week. We will be joined by Sadie then. But uh, so far, it seems uh, here the pandemic is a non-event. Yeah. There are no masks. Well, we've been here 16 hours, but yes. No, but it's uh, last year was in evidence. Of much course. More. Oh, of course. Here we go. Yeah. So this is different. More people around. I, I feel like it's, it's very crowded. Very crowded. It's very crowded. People, people have been, been dying to get out. Yeah. yeah. And they've all come to Block Island. Yeah. But so. we have a slightly remote location, so we're not bothered by that. But when we head into town, it's, it's quite a scene. It's quite yeah. a scene. It's like, uh, you know, New York Times Square and... Two Coney in the morning, Island. Coney Island, you know, overnight, you know, on, on Rosh Hashanah. I mean, it's uh, it's it's not quite Coney Island in a busy day, but it's, it's you know, you get hundreds of people in Block Island, it's it's a big deal, you know, the streets are narrow. So in any event, uh, but we're back on the beam, back on the beam. Uh, so there were there was a story here, Tamsin, that uh, really relates close to home in a very odd way, and that is the story about the ever given. 
the Ever Given being the large cargo ship that in the end of March got stuck in the Suez Canal. And you'll remember that, uh, well, it was a huge upset. Right. Um, they thought it would never get free. They thought it would never get free. And we'd never get plywood again right. from China or wherever it well, comes he, from. Well, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So here's the specific thing. First first of all, it took them six or seven days to dig out enough of a hole to free up the ship so it could get past. And uh, so I guess I was thinking, and maybe others assumed too, that the Ever Given went on its way. Uh, and... Um, we would, which was kind of interesting for several reasons. One, a very personal reason, because at that point uh, in time, at the end of March, uh, Granger Nico had uh, had arranged to get some shelving from IKEA. Well, yeah, they had ordered uh, component parts right. for their cabinets right. from IKEA, and they were told uh, that it's not coming in as late. And they kept bothering about that, even in ensuing weeks. And they say, it's still not here. And they say, how could it still not be here? Ikea would say. Ikea would say that. Because yeah. they initially said it was on this ship, the Ever Given. And I'm saying to myself, really? And then, then it was like, well, there was a big, you know, it's still not here. It's still not here. And then they, weeks and weeks later, they said, you know something? I don't think you can count on getting that in the near term. And I said in my infinite wisdom, the Granger, you know, this, this notion that the Ever Given is involved in this it's just an excuse. Ikea just doesn't have the stuff. I mean, everyone's going to point at that ship and say that's where the stuff was. It was on that ship. All right. So I have to look further into this. And here's, here's what's interesting about it. Number one, even though we all assumed, I assumed, that when the Ever Given was uh, sort of uh, allowed to go, you know, dug out, uh, after six or seven days, this went on to its destination. The answer is that's not the case. What happened was... It was detained. It was detained. You're on to this. So it was detained because it turns out that there were damages to be paid. There were damages to be paid because of all the work that had to be done to free up the Ever Given. Well, the Egyptian authorities there said that that would cost the, the owner of the Ever Given, who's Japanese, $916 million, which is, is a lot of money. But on the other hand... The cost to commerce as a whole was $5.1 billion, so it's mm. not exactly that. But in any case, big argument, big negotiations. It was only just a few days ago, really, July 8th, that they reached a settlement and the Ever Given was allowed to go on. Okay, so the truth is the ship was detained a long time, only a few days because of getting stuck, and uh, but more because of these negotiations. But now, once you evolve the lawyers, yeah, but once you evolve the lawyers, things then you, come to a blinding. Then halt. you're really jammed in this but, Suez Canal. Um, so I thought you were going to say you did you did locate their cabinets. Well, wait, oh, wait a second. This is be patient. So then the Times has a huge expose, as the Times does, Sunday, July 18th. How a massive ship jammed the Suez Canal, and of course, it has all the information in it except. Uh, exactly how it happened. They, they don't really, who can know? But they, they point to things that are problematic. They say, first of all, the ship is huge. Oh, it's not a surprise, but they make the point that it is as long as the Empire State Building is tall. That's big. <laughs> yeah. And then they uh, say, and... Um, a floating city, yeah, as they said about the Titanic. And uh, the uh, that's one problem. The second problem is, uh, you know, a lot of people have been ordering goods uh, because of the pandemic. So it's filled with goods and it's heavy. I'm saying to myself, okay, this is getting a little remote. 
And the third problem, of course, is capitalism. The Times is on to that. But, but the other problem in terms of the actual physical conditions is that uh, the ships have been getting bigger. Someone did figure out some time ago that there are some economies of scale with bigger ships. And the Suez Canal has been widening, but they didn't happen to widen this particular area. So they got in there and it was windy and the captain couldn't see and uh, they jammed this way and they jammed that way and they went faster and they went slower. And the truth is uh, no one can figure it out. And uh, the people... They don't want to blame the pilots, and uh, they don't want to blame the owner, and they don't want to blame the Suez Canal. So it, it's totally inconsequential, uh, not inconclusive. Okay, fine. It's a hard thing to figure out. But here's what's interesting. At the end of the Times article, it says, apropos of nothing, since the grounding, the ship has been impounded in the canal, along with its cargo of Lenovo laptops, IKEA furniture, and wearable blankets. <laughs> <laughs> so the story is that Granger's and Nico's cabinets were sitting in the Ever Given, and they've been there for three months because of this legal wrangle. And the Times, even though they didn't realize that this was ace reporting, has figured out we found Granger and Nico's cabinets. Except they moved on. Except they have different cabinets now. But uh, they'll always, you know, look ruefully at what could have been, at the cabinets they might have had, which are still sitting in the hull of the Ever Given. How's that story? Well, that's some crack reporting there, Daniel. Thanks very much. Really? Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Very, very interesting. Okay, what am I doing now? You're talking about the hurricane naming. Hurricane naming. Sadly, we think of hurricanes. We don't like to, really, because Block Island... You, you know, there was hurricane. a tropical storm, Danny, last week, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. I know. It didn't mount to much. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but I was all excited for a minute. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> Not that that's ever happened before. <laughs> Just go move on, would you please? Moving right along here. Yeah. Um, uh, and anyway, so there was a, a cute little article in your Wall Street Journal uh, about how um, they come up with the hurricane names. Yeah. And it turns out um, they've been doing this uh, for a while, 1953. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they have six rosters of 21 names and they have 21 names because that's how many hurricanes there were in like 1933 which was an exceptional hurricane right. year who needs more than 21 names they're prepared they have 21 names um so they, so they have a few backup names they're, they're alphabetical they're in alphabetical order and uh what happens is they just keep rotating through the six. Right, right, right. So whatever storm names you hear this year, you're going to hear them again in uh, it's, it's, 2000. It's like cicadas, but it's a little shorter 2027, cycle. 2027. Right, exactly okay? right. And so on and so forth. But right. with one but big caveat. Right. If a storm causes a lot of damage, becomes infamous, it will be retired. The name will be retired. Yeah. And they'll replace that with a new name. Well, that's interesting. In the roster. That's interesting. Yeah. I like that. That's uh, and then um, if they run out of names, then they resort to the Greek alphabet. But that hasn't been so successful because last year all of a sudden they had Zeta, Eta, and Theta almost at the same time, which is very confusing, unsatisfactory. Yeah, so they um, came up with uh, some other alternate names: Adria, Braylon, Caridad, Deshawn, uh, etc. Yeah. Um, so, was there anything else interesting about it? Uh, oh, um, in the Atlantic, names are assigned in alphabetical order, but uh, Q, U, X, Y, and Z are omitted because they aren't common enough. And they alternate between male and female names. Yes, they alternate between male and female. I mean, they try to avoid any kind of uh, religious uh, sensi sensibilities or anything like that. 
it's 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 because they don't want to seem like you know they're blaming somebody it's uh, the huge bureaucracy you would assume it is they made a big deal out of nothing but it used you know i thought it was funny because they said when they used to get to the excess name portion guys would name the hurricanes after their girlfriends uh-huh. Uh, and that that now that's not they're not allowed to do that anymore. So it would okay. be like Hurricane Rita, you know, would be named after somebody <laughs> really some Rita who so was really a hot number. That was Hurricane Rita, uh, and that's I assume how Hurricane Danny got got its, got its name because somebody oh, really? Yeah, really? knew somebody Danny yeah. who was a really big deal. But in any event, uh, so now you know. You can listen to that. It is kind of interesting that they retire. That's a superstitious thing. They but retire. different places have different conventions with the names. Yeah, we have male female names, but. Uh, over in uh, the northern Indian Ocean, they're gender neutral. Okay. Stuff like that. I don't, so, I don't, but, what, but what, what does that these, mean? What, what? what does that mean, it's gender neutral? Their names... Well, it could be they, you know, they try to have ma- names like Leslie. Uh-huh. So it's not oh, really? a girl or not a boy. They got enough of those? You know, it's, yeah, because it, I, I guess <laughs> in that part of the world, maybe they do. Uh, okay. Live well, and learn. Them up. All right. Anyway, there are there are you know there are committees for different areas. It's I'm not gl- like all the storms. Look, I'm glad they're on top of Cover the it. whole world. All right. Good. All right. All right. So God knows what they do in the Pacific. I don't know. Well, they hope not. Well, they hope not to have hurricanes. So the um, an article here about Los Angeles theater, which is uh, uh, about the uh, labor issues. It, it, they don't seem to understand that it is that, but that is what it's about. So it, the the headline of the article is. A hard journey back for Los Angeles theater. And they say, you know, there are all these small Los Angeles theaters with budgets under a million dollars that are really in terribly hard times now. And, you know, they talk about the pandemic. But as you read the article, you realize it's not the pandemic. No, it's not the pandemic. (laughs) It's not the pandemic. California passed a law, which is called the Gig Worker Law, which mandates that Everyone has to get paid a minimum wage of $15 an hour and have to be payroll taxers and pack taxes, workers' comp, and unemployment insurance. All right? Um, as a result of that minimum wage law, these theaters, a lot of them, according to the article, cannot operate. Because they don't pay minimum wage. No, they traditionally they, have not paid minimum wage. They pay wage. little stipends. Stipends. You make it- Nine or twenty dollars for a performance, right? For a rehearsal, right? Not per hour, right? Exactly, right. And so, uh, you know, how are they going to do this? Right. So they went and they they go. They say we'd like an exemption. They go to the, the legislature in California, and they say we would like an exemption for uh, theater workers because this economic model doesn't work. We can't pay people like that. These small theaters can't operate like that. We'll just go out of business. And these are really small theaters. Right. And we'll shut the doors. These are like some of them 50 seats. Right, right. Well, or whatever, yeah. 90 seats. Well, yeah, okay. And uh, your article makes small. a point that uh, they, you know, out of all the hundreds in this Los Angeles area, yeah, um, only a handful have budgets of like a million bucks. Right, or right, right. Yeah, they're small, and and, and, and they're critical. And though that handful is something like eighty-three percent of the revenue. revenue yeah, right. Well, of they, theater, but the, the significance area. of it is they talk to Danny Glover, and Danny Glover says these small theaters are critical. A lot of people get their start. He got his start. You move on to bigger things. It's an important part of the cultural life. And as you and I pointed out at the outset, there is no cultural life on the West Coast. So <laughs> they have this as important part being at risk. Is, is a big deal. So what happens, certainly some people in theater companies say, we got to go to the legislature, we got to get an exemption. 
But Actors' Equity is in a progressive, a progressive organization. Yeah. And they say, well, we can't give an exception because that means people will be paid less. We feel people should get paid more, which takes us exactly to the issue with the minimum wage laws. When people talk about the minimum wage law, it's always the good guys and the bad guys. They say, oh, good guys, we should have minimum wages. They're the bad guys, they're just trying to keep wages down. In economics, that has never been the issue with minimum wage law. Minimum wage law is always, under the classical economics, minimum wage law will result in unemployment because people get paid what they can, the, the employer can afford. And if that number is lower than minimum wage, that organization shuts down. Now, I'm not going to take a position on this. So this legislation yeah. was meant to protect things like the Uber, Uber drivers. drivers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I'm not sure that it's justified anywhere or if it's justified everywhere. I'm just saying that actually is the economic issue, which is never discussed. And even this article doesn't think it's discussing it, but it is because that's exactly what's going on. It's a classic case. So then you have Tim Robbins, you know, who's left of center of left of center. Tim Robbins is one half of the Susan Sarandon couple. He's extremely progressive. And he's saying, oh, God, we need an exemption. We need an exemption. No, 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 no. Yes, he Well, is. he says we need an exemption because what, people, what some people are suggesting, well, you, you know, you'll get these, um, you get relief, not relief. Um, no, you, well, you'll, you'll, get, you'll, you'll get government grants. relief. And he's saying you'll that. Government right. support. And, and, and Robin says, yeah, but what happens when that disappears? Right. Well, well it, I mean, the truth is, now, I skipped this step. Yeah. The government support is really not a, not for this. The government support is, f- is for the pandemic. So pay, some people might be taking advantage of pandemic support for a few months or a year. And Robin says that that's really a sideshow. That's going to end. That's not the answer. So put that aside and let's think about what works here. And you know what doesn't work? This law, minimum wage, doesn't work. We'll kill the theater community. We need an exemption. This is a law that's meant for Lyft and Uber workers, not meant for us. And you have a – and it was, it's very interesting to me. So now he's he's arguing against the application of the minimum wage law. But so we'll see if it, what happens. Well, you have connections in the theater world. And yes. there are those who believe that, you know, theater period yeah. should be uh, supported by – the government. Okay, you can. Yes, there are those, and and uh, that, that it's. That, I think they no will. Reason for it to they be will be proven a functioning economic. They model. will be proven correct in many countries, but not the United States of America, which is a capitalist country. So that is a, as an interesting point of view, and it's the way it works in the UK, but it doesn't work that way here, and uh, many things don't work in the UK as a result. So, but uh, it, it's. It's very interesting to me just that at least the economic issue is raised here in a very concrete setting. No one, and, and to say, okay, I have a solution. The government will pay for everything. That's not a solution, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, in a free market system, the minimum wage law is going to raise exactly this kind of problem. And how it resolves itself, uh, we'll see. Well, it's complicated, I think. Yeah, it's actually less complicated uh, than people make it out to be. But uh, yes. Um, Art. Yes. Here's 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 the deal. Yeah. So another article about these Van Gogh immersive exhibitions. Yeah. Which are really entertainments mm-hmm. projecting Van Gogh paintings, right. etc. Mm-hmm. And they seem like fun. We we said that before, but it, it's not art, is it? Pictures of art isn't art. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it's some form of art, but it's not Van Gogh's art mm-hmm. or anything like that. So I'm not worried about it. If you go and you want to do this, fine. Why does Times keep writing about this? 
I, I, they must have they must have friends who are invested in these companies. I'm sure they do. They have now they have an article by Maya Phillips, and she says yes. When she went to uh, the Musée d'Orsay and she looked at the Van Goghs, she cried. Mm-hmm. And she went to the ex- exhibitions, she didn't cry. Mm-hmm. But this is not a surprise. I'm, I just don't understand. I, I, it wasn't that interesting an article. I'm just bringing it up because New York Times. What are you doing? Yeah, you really run out of subjects. They are looking for things to write about. Either that, or I seriously think they, uh, you know, have a reason to be writing about these things again and again and again. What do you think that is? I'm telling you, they're they're you know they're supporting it. They're you know trying to give them publicity. All right. Well, look, a lot of the stories you know are just you know encouraged by public relations people. They write the story for them. They give them the story. And uh, it writes. Yeah, it's not, it's not a big shock. Okay. That uh, I think that looking at a picture, however marvelously projected, yeah, um, of a painting is not going to be is not going to be anywhere near the experience of seeing the painting, yeah. experiencing the painting. Speaking of art, um, there was an article about in the New York Times a week or two ago about Carrara, Italy. You know the word Carrara, right? I mean, even today, you go shopping for your new uh, countertop in your kitchen. Yeah. And uh, they're even uh, sort of uh, manufactured stone made to look like Carrara marble. Really? Yeah, the most famous, I think, uh, marble. You know, all all the greats went to Carrara to find marble. To make their sculptures, I didn't know that. Michelangelo's and the others. So that, that's what. What's the difference in the marble? It, well, I, you know, it's fabulous looking. Okay. It's very white, very, you know, beautiful. People I don't know. I'm not. An, I'm not an expert okay. in marble. Mm-hmm. Sad to say, uh, but anyway. Um, so the big uh, shock is now. Yeah. Um, so when we think of great sculptures, we think of Michelangelo. We think of uh, you know somebody. Um, chiseling away to make these masterpieces and uh, now the problem in Carrara is they're beginning to have robots do the sculpting really yes Um, and And they're talking here to Giacomo Massari one of the founders of Robotor a company that owns sculpting robots okay and this is a guy who got into the business um, you know he they he and his he had a partner. They were buying robots mm-hmm. to uh, do sculpture, mm-hmm. and then they ended up being able to make their own better robots. Mm. And so they have them cranking out the sculpture. People are shocked. They're up in arms. You know, I'm not upset at all. It's not like any. It's not like all these people, including the big M, Michelangelo, Michelangelo, whatever you want to call him, Bernini. Um, and uh, you know many others. Uh, who else? Went Canova, etc. Um, actually, did all the sculpting. For instance, uh, the um, okay. Masari says here, artists want to perpetuate the idea they are still chiseling with a hammer. It makes me laugh. The idea of the artist working alone is a romantic concept created in the nineteenth century. Uh, and and this is true. Most of the the really great art we talk about, and we've said this before, 
was done in workshops. I mean, you don't have Raphael actually painting all the Raphaels. Oh, he but, has but, a but, workshop. But hold on for a second. Same for sculptures. Okay. So the this uh, robot sculpture, are they making new sculptures or are they making copies? They're doing both. Okay. They're being, they're being programmed to uh, create sculptures. Well, I, I would think it's uh, whatever you get out of a uh, programming something completely new, a new work, there's no issue. You just manage to use a robot instead of taking the chisel in your own hand. No, but, I, but it doesn't matter anyway, Daniel. There have always been, you know, factors, people sculpting for the artist. I understand that. For the designer. But I thought the, I thought okay? the issue really It's was, like, and you have great bronze sculptures. <laughs> you know, the artists are not casting the bronze. I understand that. But I'm, I'm, getting, I'm going at some place. I can't take that point. I'll take yeah. that as the principal point of the article. But what if it makes? What about the idea of it's making an exact copy of, of a Michelangelo sculpture? To some people, are they objecting to that, saying it's just as good as the Michelangelo because now you have a robot. No, doing I don't it? think that they're, they're, it's more like they're saying this is not true sculpture. I see because it's being made by oh, okay. a robot. All right, but uh, it, it's always been a matter of an artist designing. I, I mean, see. you do have artists that do their own sculpting. No question about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the human touch, I mean, they even say here, the human touch may only be uh, 1%, but it is essential. But it's more about design. Okay. Uh, right. Not... Um, All right, good. So, you know, it, uh, so that I'm, I'm not upset about either. All right. I'm but glad you... They have a, one of the machines is called ABB2. Come on, ABB2. You're not upset because you're... Make those sculptures. You're in Block Island. You're relaxed. You're not upset about anything, basically. This is not the same cantankerous uh, Tams and Granger were used to. No, it's just that that's, um, you know, that's not what it's about. All right. I mean, there, it takes a village. Okay. I mean, even when you think about writing, think of editors, copy editors, mm-hmm. think of all that goes into writing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's it's still, you know, you attribute the greatness to the author, mm-hmm. not to all the worker bees who helped create it. It's it's the way we look. Work. Okay, so um, there's an obituary of a guy named Dickie Mogul, which reminds us of a story that took place years and years ago. Um, And, you know, it feels like centuries ago. Uh, but I'm aware of it because they used to talk about well, it, it in the 1950s. Well, it was in the past century. It was, I guess it was. It was and, in 1954. Pretty soon, yes, it will be in a century. Well, look, ago. I'll tell you what happened. In 1954, you say 1954, time was simple. People played football games once in a while. Rice is involved in the football game. It sounds like a very colloquial affair. Here's the real story. 1954, Cotton Bowl, 75,000 fans in Dallas. Okay. The number 13 team in the country, Alabama, Always a powerhouse. They're playing Rice, who is the number six team in the country, which is hard to believe in and of itself. The star running back, Tommy Mogul of Rice, takes a handoff at Rice's five-yard line in the second quarter of the game, cuts to the right, races down the sideline. When he passed the Alabama bench while crossing midfield on his way to a virtually certain touchdown, a fullback... On the sidelines for Alabama named Tommy Lewis, an important player, but not a defensive player, without his helmet on, ran on the field and tackled Dickie Mogul to prevent him from running for a touchdown. Well, that's not allowed. No. It's, 
is not allowed. It's this is a huge sporting event, and this guy runs on the sideline in the full view of seventy-five thousand people and tackles the opposing guy. What was he thinking? Well, he answered that question at halftime. He said, "You know, I'm too emotional." Uh, when I had him tackled, I jumped up and got back to the bench. I kept telling myself I didn't do it, but I knew I did do it. <laughs> All right? It doesn't make any sense. He actually went over in halftime to apologize to Dickie Mogul. Dickie Mogul, for his part, said, I veered to the left. That helped cushion the blow. If I hadn't veered away from him, I really think he would have broken both my legs. <laughs> so what does the referee do in a situation like this, you're wondering? The referee awards... Vicky Mogul, a touchdown. Good. Right? You never see that. You never get a touchdown from a penalty. And uh, he had a tremendous game. He had other huge runs in that game. Rice won the game. And uh, this, this, you know, I guess I, since no one knows about this, over time the story died down. But for years and years, it was a big story. People would talk about it all the time. And it apparently annoyed Dickie Mogul, who passed away at the age of six. You know, Age of what? Age 86. I'm sorry. 86. He says, people still don't get it. I led the nation in punt returns. I led the nation in yards per carry. I led the conference in rushing and in scoring. But in people, when people introduce me, all they ever mention is what happened in that game. And he was a big star. He's in the Collegiate Hall of Fame. He's a big name. And he was a very star player in the NFL. So that's something we don't see very much. Uh, and finally, there was the obituary of Richard Donner, which I'm only going to mention for one reason. Richard Donner was the very well-known director of a lot of popular movies, including the, the first Superman series, first Superman movie in some time, uh, Lethal Weapon, uh, all kinds of films that you've heard of, um, Maverick, uh, on and on and on. But, uh, but here's what's interesting to me about him. His name, real name, is not Richard Donner. His real name is Richard Donald Schwartzberg. His father was a Russian Jewish immigrant, and he decided at a young age to change his name. He took his stage name from the famous Donner Pass party, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which was observing its centennial at the time. Now, let's think about this. This guy was born in 1930. Right. All right. The Donner Pass incident happened in 1846. Mm-hmm. The centennial was would have been 1946. He probably didn't change his name until he was like 20 or something, 1950 or so. But that's probably, they were still in the aftermath of celebrating the Donner Pass Centennial. It was a, it was a more talked about thing given the 100-year anniversary. And then what happens is a few years after that, someone's born in Maryland who is named well, after I took, Yes, I the take Tamsin. my stage name from the Donner Pass as well, Tamsin Donner. Yes, yes it's true. Tamsin it's true. Granger was named oh. after Tamsin Donner. Now we know, but, but that's why that, the Donner Pass was so, I didn't realize, so prominent. At that time, there was a celebration of the centennial over the few years that preceded your being born. Well, there was that, but also my parents had traveled out there, and they went through the Donner Pass. But, but one, they probably, so, so they, they may have traveled out there on the actually 100th anniversary. At the centennial? No. I happened to <laughs> What year were they out there? They were out there in the 50s, like because my brother Steve was born. Close enough. 100 <laughs> Things happen slower than it. 1946, I, well, 
the end not of unlike you people you know forgetting dicky mogul yeah you know some people have forgotten about uh, the donner family and how they perished on their way to the west yes. and that uh, some people in the group um actually uh, you know they got stuck in the snow and people yeah. died and yeah. uh there were people resulted to cannibalism. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's not, Tamsin not Tamsin Donner. Not Tamsin But Donner. Um, I was uh, named after her. My And my parents always said, you weren't really named after her. Right. Okay. You got it's the not name that we her. revered her so much. It's more about we liked the name. That's right. So that's, that's, that's what uh, Pepper's parents say about the Spider-Man movie. Pepper Potts. Not named after Pepper Potts. Girlfriend of Spider-Man, but uh, not Spider-Man, uh, Iron Man. My mistake, Iron Man. But they like the name. All right, so there you go. There's your connection with Richard Donner. Who knew? In the 50s, that's all people were talking about. Really? Now we know. All right, so that's all we have. We're yeah, gonna... we, we really got to get to the beach at this yes, point. We got to so soak up the sun. it's a little bit of a shortened uh, episode today, but... Uh, we deserve it. We'll, yeah, we'll go out and uh, have some experiences. And then we'll uh, relate them next week. We'll have the uh, Block Island podcast featuring Sadie. All right, so this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuha. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. And uh, yeah, we'll be back.